Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago Sazanov's Day Today is the 24th of July 2014 and on this day in history 100 years ago occurred the following events. This means European war, was the phrase Sergei Sazanov, the Russian foreign minister, greeted his chief of staff with at 10am 100 years ago. Though he had known of the Austro-Hungarian plans to deliver an ultimatum for days, he had not yet read the ultimatum, and though the Russian ambassador in Belgrade had wired through some of the details, it would be the upcoming meeting with Count Zapari, the Habsburg ambassador to Russia, that would bring the Russian completely up to speed. Sazanov was likely taken aback, not by the fact that the ultimatum existed, but that it had been delivered, as the rumours had suggested. For days, Sazanov had been together with the French president, Raymond Poincaré, and only the night before, when Sazanov had been finalising the farewell process, had news of the ultimatum filtered through. A full ten hours before Sazanov exploded with his memorable remark, he had thus been made aware that the Habsburg Empire had crossed the line, and thus his claim that the whole event meant European war likely suggests his intentions to pursue a certain policy, rather than an exclamation of surprise, as has often been believed. Sazanov, Poincaré and many others did know that Austria had been planning to deliver a harsh, unacceptable ultimatum to Serbia within a few days. They knew that it had been designed to coincide with the French president leaving St. Petersburg, thanks to Russian cryptographers, and that Vienna would thus have to act soon. Though a wealth of warnings had been delivered to the German and Austrian ambassadors in the days before that made veiled threats against such a course of action, the communication defects of the time, combined with other factors, meant that the Austrian foreign minister, Leopold von Berchtold, was still unaware that the Habsburg plans had been compromised. What greeted him was thus not surprise, but anger and indignation that the troublesome rumours had turned out to be true, and that the prepared plans for a military or forceful response should now be implemented. It was far from the reception Berchtold had anticipated. 
But at least Bergdahl would not have to speak with the now angered Russian foreign minister. That would be the job of the Austrian ambassador to Russia, Count Zapari, who had scheduled a meeting with Sazanov for 10am on the 24th of July, for the very purpose of running through the terms of the ultimatum, and hopefully, as Berchtold understood it, persuade the Russians to keep out of the incoming conflict. But Zapari thought he was about to have a conversation with a surprised, disadvantaged and unprepared Russian. Sazanov, at 10am on the 24th of July, was none of these things. He was angry, prepared, and not at all willing to cave in as the Habsburgs desired. When Zapari arrived, he noted that Sazanov appeared in no way shocked or surprised, and that he remained quite calm throughout the meeting. As Zapari ran through the terms of the ultimatum, with added commentary, Sazanov barely seemed to flinch. This was supposed to be Vienna's moment to demonstrate its hardline policy and justify itself to the Russians. Instead it was the moment that the scales fell violently from Zapari's eyes. Sazanov objected firmly to numerous aspects of the ultimatum, including the aforementioned one that it required Austro-Hungarian cooperation with Serbian authorities, and the presence of the former's officials on Serbian soil and with Serb institutions to ensure that an investigation into Serbian organisations succeeded. In reality, the clause had been inserted to ensure Serb refusal of the terms and provide the basis for war, and it was therefore hard for Zapari to justify it to Sazanov during the meeting. When Zapari claimed that Austria's efforts to stamp out Serb terrorism stood as one with all civilised nations, Sazanov declared that this was erroneous and told the Hungarian that you are setting Europe ablaze. Sazanov wasn't finished though. Unleashing a speech that he had likely been cooking since he had learned of Habsburg plans, the Russian warned Zapari to consider the impression the ultimatum would make in Paris, London and perhaps elsewhere, or it would be considered as unjustified aggression. When Zapari attempted to bring the monarchical principle back into view, perhaps in a desperate attempt to stop this Russian steamroller and bring Sazanov over to his side, the latter simply swatted it away and declared emphatically that the monarchical principle has nothing to do with this. When Zapari eventually left Sazanov's office, no doubt with more questions and warnings than answers for his government, Sazanov got to work. Fulfilling his plan to provide a response to Vienna, the foreign minister summoned the Council of Ministers for 3pm that day, sending urgent notices that their presence would be compulsory to the Chief of Army Staff and Chief of Naval Staff. He added to the former to make all arrangements for putting the army on a war footing. Russia's finance minister was the first to heed the call, arriving at the government offices at 11am. Since Sazanov wasn't present at that time, he grilled Sazanov's chief of staff, Moritz Schilling, who had been instrumental in the days before, discovering what the Austrians had been up to. Schilling was asked by the finance minister, Was there any likelihood of war? To which Schilling, reportedly without hesitation, replied, Sazanov considered war unavoidable. The minister then inquired whether matters would move quickly, since, in that case, I should like to take immediate steps to ensure the transfer of the Russian treasury funds deposited in Berlin. Schilling instructed the finance minister to act at once, reflecting the mood at the time. Since this Russian finance minister, a man called Peter Bark, had worked in German firms previously, he was able to work with lightning speed and withdraw 100 million rubles the equivalent of over $20 billion in today's money, from German accounts, and move them to Russian and French ones instead. Sazanov, in fact, was conversing with the military VIPs in Russia, 
before the scheduled meeting of 3pm, would put all of Russia's critical citizens in the same room together. While Peter Bark organized the repatriation of Russian funds, Sazanov was picking the brains of the Russian military chief of staff, a General Yanushkevich. Sazanov's goal seemed to be to mobilize Russia in a way that would not alarm Germany, to create a partial mobilization that would prepare Russian military personnel for a march against Austria, without giving Germany justifiable cause to join in. The idea had been posed back in the Balkan Wars in November 1912, with the same aim, to threaten Vienna without worrying Germany. A key part of the plan was to not mobilise Russian Poland, so that the commanders in East Prussia would have no cause for concern. However, the plan had been vetoed by the Prime Minister of Russia in 1912, the cautious Kukovstov, on the grounds that No matter what we chose to call the projected measures, a mobilisation remained a mobilisation, to be countered by our adversaries with actual war. Sazanov had, in November 1912, agreed with Kukovstov at the time, even adding that Russia should never consider mobilisation without first consulting France. Sazanov was now a changed man though, it seemed, because shortly after 11am on this day 100 years ago, he asked Chief of Staff Yanushkevich to draw up a partial mobilisation plan against Austria and Austria alone. Yanushkevich wasted little time. He summoned the chief of the Russian army's mobilization section and informed him that Russia would announce in a short time that it could not remain indifferent to the wholly unacceptable ultimatum. The chief of staff then made sure that a notice would be placed in the newspaper of the war ministry and would read, Russia would not remain inactive if the dignity and the integrity of the Serb people, our blood brothers, are threatened with danger. When Yanushkevich asked the chief of mobilization whether he was ready to begin the process, and the latter said he was, Yanushkevich replied, In that case, in an hour, bring me all the documents relative to the preparing of our troops for war, which provide, in case of necessity, for proclaiming partial mobilization against Austria-Hungary alone. This mobilization must give no occasion to Germany to find any grounds of hostility to herself. To this, the chief of mobilization, General Dobroralski, reacted badly, claiming that attempting to mobilize against one and not the other of the central powers was folly since it was physically impossible to forego the Russian plans, now called Plan 19 in its latest form, that had been developed for years. Dobroralski was concerned not just that Germany would not allow its ally to be attacked since the very definition of the agreement between the central powers was supposedly defensive, but he was also concerned about geography. It would be impossible to mobilise property against Austria without using the Warsaw hub of railways and telecommunications that had been developed for the purpose of war with an Austro-German enemy. Since the partial mobilisation plan approved by Sazanov this time upheld as a requirement the removal of Poland from the process, that left Russia with the option of invading the entirety of the Habsburg Empire through a tiny sliver of Galicia, or by way of Romanian passage. Neither of these options, Dobrowolski insisted, were in themselves practical, and in the event of an attack on Austria, Germany would never stand down either, so Russia may as well attack from its strongest point. Yanushkevich, being a recent appointee to Chief of Staff, may not have considered Dobrowolski's points before talking with the man, but the latter was his subordinate, and thus committed to following his orders as best as he could. It is possible that Sazanov was just as unaware of the contradictions and dangers of following its partial mobilization plan. 
However, he had been present when Kakovstov had vetoed it in November 1912, and had even sided with the pacifist Prime Minister at the time. Unless he had forgotten this crucial criticism of the policy, Sazanov appeared to be in favour of ignoring the very warnings he had considered less than two years before. One critical point was, though, that unlike in November 1912, France was on side with whatever action Russia took, even if its partial mobilisation led, as Sazanov believed it surely would, to a general war. The French support was guaranteed by Poincaré, and the meetings the two had had together over the 20th to the 23rd of July. But just to be extra sure of French support, the Russian Foreign Minister invited the French ambassador, Maurice Paleologue, and his British counterpart, Sir George Buchanan, to lunch with him before the Council of Ministers meeting in a few hours took place. Needless to say, it was a packed day for the Russian Foreign Minister. Ambassador Buchanan was eager to ascertain what Russia's stance was. He had been filled in on the delivery of the ultimatum along the same lines as everyone else. He knew that it contained harsh terms and that Serbia was unlikely to accept it, and that thus Russia would be looked upon by the Serbs to support them. The lunch meeting was revealing from the outset, when Sazanov declared that the step taken by Austria meant war. Sazanov then brought Buchanan up to speed on what Russia and France had agreed on with respect to the Balkans over the course of their previous summit. Taking the opportunity to show his support of these negotiations, Paleologue chimed in that France would not only give Russia strong diplomatic support, but would, if necessary, fulfil all the obligations imposed on her by the alliance. In other words, France would mobilise against Germany. Sazanov and Paleologue, no doubt with hopeful expressions on their faces, now turned to Buchanan and asked if his government would proclaim their solidarity with France and Russia. Buchanan had to let the two statesmen down, though, when he stated that Britain had no interests in Serbia, and public opinion would never sanction a war on her behalf. Buchanan reported that Sazanov was not willing to accept this, and insisted that the Serbian question was but part of the general European question, and that we could not remove ourselves. When Buchanan sought to find out what Sazanov meant by this loaded statement, by asking Sazanov point-blank, if Austria-Hungary took military action against Serbia, did Russia propose to declare war on her? He was greeted by the surprisingly unsure response, given all that Sazanov had done so far, which saw the Russian foreign minister explain that nothing would be decided until the Council of Ministers meeting at 3pm later on that day. Their findings, Sazanov explained to Buchanan, would then be presented the next morning on Saturday the 25th for approval by the Tsar. However, Buchanan could tell that Sazanov stood firmly in the war camp. In a note back home, Buchanan told the British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, that Sazanov thought that, at any rate, Russia would have to mobilise. This was the last thing London wanted to hear. Buchanan wanted to slow the apparent urge to war that Sazanov was undertaking, so he tried to approach the idea of getting Vienna to extend the time of the deadline for the ultimatum. This would, hopefully, enable international intervention and the easing of issues between both sides. However, Paleolog rejected this approach, noting that either Austria was bluffing or had made up her mind to act at once. Buchanan noted to Gray that Paleolog's language was so belligerent in the lunch meeting that it almost looked as if France and Russia were determined to take a strong stand even if we refused to join them. 
Buchanan said that Sazonov echoed the French ambassador's tone by insisting that if war did break out, we would sooner or later be dragged into it. When Sazonov left to prepare for the ministerial meeting at 3pm, the two ambassadors, both with very different views on the situation, were left with no illusions as to Sazonov's intentions. Sergei Sazonov literally dominated the 3pm meeting, claiming in an opening statement that there were deep-seated causes of conflict between the Central Powers and those of the Entente, insisting that Austria's ultimatum to Serbia was a mere pretext that would enable her, Germany, to prove her superiority by the use of force. Sazonov concluded by stating that Russia could not remain a passive spectator while a Slavic people were being deliberately trampled down. In 1876 and 1877, Russia had fought Turkey for the liberation of the Slavic peoples in the Balkans. We made immense sacrifices with that end in view. If Russia failed to fulfil her historic mission, she would be considered a decadent state, and would henceforth have to take second place among the powers. If, at this crucial juncture, the Serbs were abandoned to their fate, Russian prestige in the Balkans would collapse utterly. Sazanov's reasoning was echoed thereafter by the agricultural minister, who declared that the people and parliamentary opinion would fail to understand why, at this critical moment involving Russia's vital interests, the imperial government was reluctant to act boldly. The underlying message was clear. If Russia responded as it had in the Bosnian crisis of the Balkan Wars, and did not behave in a way that emphasised its stance and reinforced its great power status in the minds of its rivals and allies, then the government, if not the entire regime of Nicholas II, would collapse. It was an argument remarkably similar to that made by the Austro-Hungarian War Party, and was no less significant because of the same outcome it upheld above all others. Both Russia and its major rival in the Balkans, it seemed, were looking at the situation as a chance to better their position by war. For the Habsburgs, this was to be a war against a troublesome thorn in the side of their state, who had cooperated with terrorists to ensure the killing of their imperial heir. It was a war that would be quick, revitalising, and flush with the glory of old imperial days. The Austrian plan still maintained that Russia would not intervene. The chief of staff, Konrad von Hotzendorf, had prepared Plan B, B for the Balkans, while little concise effort had been made to implement Plan Or, or for Russia. When we contrast this with Russia, whose foreign minister argued that war against Vienna was required to dispel any stigmas attached to Russia in 1914, the danger of the situation becomes more clear. The box that Berchtold on the war... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Party had locked Austria-Hungary into depended on the idea of Russian non-intervention as in previous Balkan events. It was to be guaranteed by Germany and by French disinterest in the Balkans. However, the previous days had revealed that Russia and France would stand together whatever the outcome, and the French president was determined to demonstrate its loyalty to St. Petersburg, just like St. Petersburg felt its future depended on the style of its reaction towards Belgrade. In the meeting, now entering its critical phase, five items were proposed that had been developed by Sazanov earlier in the day. The first two terms Russia would propose were less serious than the final three. They stated that Russia promised to commit to a conference with other powers that would aim at pressuring Austria to extend the ultimatum. Despite the fact that Sazanov and Paleolog had told Buchanan this was impossible. The second term was directed at Serbia and advised it to entrust her fate to the Allies rather than resist invasion. Oddly, Sazanov was likely thinking of Britain with this move. If neutrals like Britain could see that Serbia was not acting belligerently, then more support for Serbia, diplomatic or otherwise, would surely be forthcoming. In addition, this would present Austria as the one that had disturbed the peace. The last three terms were more ominous because they focused on wartime concerns. The third of five terms stated that Russian army VIPs, including the chief of staff, would ask the Tsar to approve in principle the mobilization against Austria alone, along with, interestingly, the Russian Black and Baltic Sea fleets. Term four of five stated that Russia would begin stockpiling arms for war, while the fifth and final measure stipulated the repatriation of funds from Austria and Germany that had already begun. Sazanov was confident of their approval and in fact all five of the proposals put forward were passed unanimously. Having established a Russian response to Austrian moves, Sazanov returned to his office around 6pm and bumped into the Serbian ambassador along the way, who was eager to find out what he could about Russian decisions made in the recent meeting. The ambassador was tense because he had been recently furnished with news from the Serb Prime Minister, Nikola Pesic, that Serbia was in no condition to resist an Austrian invasion, and that thus it required Russian guidance as to what it should do next. Serbia's Prince Regent, Alexander, had telegrammed the Tsar inquiring about his country's position, and asking 
whether Serbia should accept the unacceptable or not. Demonstrating his submissiveness, Alexander had promised that Serbia would agree to all terms of the ultimatum, whose acceptance shall be advised by Your Majesty. In other words, whatever Russia advised Serbia to do, she would do. Sazanov advised the ambassador to stand firm, insofar as she could accept the less offensive clauses as a sign of good faith, but that under no circumstances should she accept clauses 5 and 6, which would violate her sovereignty. However, Sazanov told the Serb ambassador, Spalakovic, that Serbia should make a declaration and allow the Austrians to enter Serbia without putting up any resistance. Sazanov assured the Serb ambassador, then and there though, that Serbia may count on Russian aid. Though it is not known if Sazanov informed Spalakovic about the secret and more ominous decisions arrived at in the previous meeting, the Serb ambassador still possessed a clear picture. Belgrade should demonstrate moderation and good faith, but that, if it came to war, Russia would fight for her. Spalakovic raced to the telegram office so that he could report to Belgrade and fill his statesman in about Russia's position. On his way out, he passed by the German ambassador, Count Portelay, who may have given him a dirty look as he realised Serbia had got to Sazanov before he had gotten the chance. Sazanov had told the German ambassador that he was busy, so Portelay had not met with him yet. Yet, here was his Serb counterpart leaving the Russian foreign minister's office. Had he known that Sazanov had already dined with his British and French counterparts too earlier in the day, Portelay would likely have been more offended still. But now the time had finally come for Germany, and at 7pm on the 24th of July, its ambassador stormed into the indefatigable Russian's office. On the evening of the 23rd of July, as Nikola Pesic was travelling back to Belgrade, Dr. Lazapachu, the stand-in decision-maker in the Serb capital until Pesic returned, wired off a circular note to Serb legations around the world, informing them of the ultimatum, and stating flatly that its demands were such that no Serbian government could accept them in their entirety. Shortly after this, the Prince Regent Alexander met with the new Russian ambassador to Serbia, and told him that the acceptance of the ultimatum was an impossibility for a state which has the slightest regard for its dignity. Alexander was adamant that his country placed its trust in the Tsar, whose powerful word alone could save Serbia. On the morning of the 24th of July, Serbian Prime Minister Pesic was meeting this Russian ambassador again, and came to the conclusion that Serbia should seek a postponing of the deadline, but that, if war was unavoidable, we shall fight. Such talk and actions suggest a unanimous determination of Serbia to resist the ultimatum. However, it is a misleading picture. There still existed, among Serbian minds, the memory of Sazanov advising Serbia to back down during the Albanian crisis in October 1913, and some worried that lightning would strike twice. Ascertaining the French attitude was similarly difficult because Poincaré was only now on his way back from St. Petersburg, and the French ambassador to Serbia collapsed on the 15th of July and had not been replaced yet, adding to the Serbian mystery. The meeting that Pachu had called on the evening of the 23rd of July had not produced a result, and that advice given by Pesic the next day alluded to a wait-and-see attitude until Russia's stance was known. The Prime Minister cabled the Serb ambassador, Spalakovic, requesting clarification of Russia's position, 
and stressed that he eagerly awaited the ambassador's findings. The mood had grown fatalistic in Serbia's government, according to the historian Luciano Magrini, who interviewed Serb statesmen after the events took place. Magrini concluded from these interviews with high-level Serbian decision-makers and other witnesses that Serbia had essentially decided to accept the ultimatum by the afternoon of the 24th of July. Magrini noted that, It was thought that in the condition she was known to be in, Serbia could not be expected to do otherwise than yield to so terrible a threat. The initial picture of resistance seems to have given way in Belgrade to one of submission. This picture was echoed by the British ambassador to Serbia, who telegrammed Sir Edward Grey in London with news that Serbia was even willing to accept points 5 and 6 that would allow a commission of inquiry on Serbian soil, so long as the appointment of such a commission can be proved to be in accordance with international usage. Even Pesic had acquiesced, and in a mood of resignation, noted that Belgrade intended to send a reply that would be conciliatory on all points, and offer Austria full satisfaction. The message from this Serbian climb-down is to be expected, but still notable. Belgrade obviously rated Vienna's military capabilities above those of its own, especially when it remained in the dark about the intentions of its allies. If Serbia was abandoned when it came under attack, she would be doomed. Would it not be better to stomach the humiliation for the sake of survival? Fortunately for Serb statesmen, such issues in the end were solved by the reply sent back from St. Petersburg by the Serb ambassador that Pejic was so eagerly waiting on. As Ambassador Spalakovic had rushed to telegraph Belgrade, he would have known that his news was important, because it seems to have turned the entire picture of events around for Serbia, and ultimately changed how they would respond. That Serbia could count on Russian aid if she was attacked was good news for Serbian statesmen, and this commitment was accompanied by the less exciting advice that Serbia should avoid any provocative action. The Serb ambassador would wire off another telegram at 1.40am on Saturday morning, the 25th of July, that informed Belgrade about Russian plans to publish an official communique in which Russia takes Serbia under its protection. News which stiffened the resolve of Serb statesmen, who had previously appeared on the verge of capitulation. These revelations had all been made possible by the meeting that Spalakovic had had with Sazanov at 6pm, and the former's report on the meeting established the new Serb position of resistance. While Belgrade brimmed with suggestions as to what this meant, the German ambassador Portelay was enduring a verbal thrashing by the by now surely exhausted Sazanov. On the 24th of July, Sergei Sazanov had had a caustic meeting with the Habsburg ambassador to Russia, he'd had an important meeting with Russian military chiefs as they debated policy, he then had a revealing lunch date in which he dined with the British and French ambassadors. Shortly thereafter, he met with the Council of Ministers and further clarified the Russian position. Then he left to have an hour-long meeting with the Serbian ambassador. As soon as Ambassador Spalakovic left his room, the German ambassador walked in. In other words, July 24, 1914 was a day of heavy-duty work for the Russian foreign minister. If any day could be alluded to as one in which he had the most important part to play for the French, German, Serbian and Austrian statesmen he interacted with and the implications these conversations had, July 24th is surely that day. But it was not over yet. That aforementioned meeting with the German ambassador was in the process of taking place 
and Sazanov no doubt rolled his eyes when he saw Portolet walk in. This would not be a friendly conversation. While in the corridor, Portolet had already informed the Serb ambassador of his hopes to localise the Serbian issue. In other words, as established by the German Chancellor, the German position was that Vienna had the right to a free hand in its Balkan affairs, especially with regards to Serbia. However, Spolekovic would have none of this, and informed the ambassador that the Serbian question was already a European question, whether the Germans or Austrians liked it or not. Already a little miffed before he met with Sazanov then, Portolet would surely have become more upset still, when his proposal for localization was rejected again by the Russian foreign minister. When Portolet tried to bring up that old chestnut, the monarchical principle, Sazanov swatted it away yet again, though this time with notably more irritation, stating that it has absolutely nothing to do with the present case. Portolet then claimed, in a later conversation with Count Zapari, that Sazanov began indulging in the most extravagant accusations and imputations against the Austro-Hungarian government. Sazanov had clearly grown weary, not just of the day, but also of Vienna's policy, and he had allowed his anger and frustrations to get the better of him. Portolet, not willing to stand for the insults thrown at his ally, complained that Sazanov was speaking under the sway of his blind, relentless hatred for Austria, which caused the Russian to make the classic reply that, Hatred is not in my character. It is not hatred I feel for Austria, but contempt. Sazanov then arrived at the real reason for his anger. He was convinced that Austria-Hungary was looking for a pretext to swallow up Serbia. In that case, however, Russia will make war on Austria. This shocked Portolet to his core. He had never heard Sazanov mention war before. Portolet tried to assure Sazanov that, even in the worst-case scenario, the ultimatum would only lead to a punitive Austrian expedition against Serbia, and that Austria was far removed from any contemplation of territorial acquisitions. Portolet then paints a vivid picture of how Sazanov responded to this assurance. Sazanov shook his head incredulously and spoke of far-reaching Austrian plans. First, Serbia would be devoured, then it would be Bulgaria's turn, and then he noted fantastically that we should have them, the Austrians, at the Black Sea. Portolet refused to humour such fantastic exaggerations, claiming that they were not worthy of serious discussion. But Portolet would not forget what Sazanov had said. He reported back that the reason for such extreme language was Sazanov's passionate, national, and especially religious hatred for Austria-Hungary which, as the Catholic state, was upheld by Sazanov to be fundamentally hostile to Orthodox Serbia. It is interesting to note Portolet's reference to the religious issue, which had scarcely reared its head since the 19th century, when nationalism had replaced religious self-determination. Perhaps it was meant to discredit the Russian foreign minister, but regardless, it remained a highly difficult meeting for both men. Portolet gave a far rosier picture of events to Berlin when he wired home but the Russian logbook records that those that saw Count Portolet as he left the ministry state that he was very agitated and does not conceal the fact that Sazanov's words and especially his firm determination to resist Austrian demands had made a strong impression on him. Portolet himself recorded in his diary that Sazanov's remarks gave him the impression that the previous council of ministers meeting that day 
must have seriously eyed the eventuality of a break with Germany and Austria-Hungary, and resolved not to hang back from an armed conflict. The revolving door of Sazanov's office was used once again as the German ambassador left the room and the French ambassador Paleologue now entered the room. Paleologue had met with Sazanov earlier in the day over lunch, and perhaps himself wanted to ascertain the results and findings of the previous ministerial meeting that afternoon. On his way in, Paleologue came across the German ambassador, and noted that Portelay left the room with his face purple and his eyes flashing. He found Sazanov in a similarly traumatised state, although no doubt exhaustion had a lot to do with the fact that the Frenchman observed that the Russian was still agitated over the dispute in which he had just been engaged. He has quick, nervous movements, and his voice is dry and jerky. Sazanov took a breath in the company of the sympathetic paleologue, who recorded the meeting in his memoirs, and told the French ambassador that Germany wholeheartedly supports the Austrian cause, not the slightest suggestion of conciliation, so I told Portelay quite bluntly that we should not leave Serbia to settle her differences with Austria alone. Revealingly, no doubt as he recalled the conversation, Sazanov told Paleolog about the point where Portelay claimed that Sazanov hated Austria. Sazanov further added to this point, now in the company of an ally, by saying that, No, of course we don't like Austria. Why should we like her? She has never done us anything but harm. Sazanov then told the Frenchman what he had come to hear, the results of the meeting earlier in the day, and told him even about the decision to plan for a partial mobilisation against Austria-Hungary. By the time Sazanov collapsed into his bed on the evening of the 24th of July, his impressions had already been felt. The wires were buzzing with replies and developments that had all been set in motion by the Russian foreign minister. It displayed for Vienna that they had been critically underestimating the Russian role. As more news filtered back into the Habsburg capital, it would surely have painted a more and more worrying picture once its statesmen learned of Russian intentions. The Austrian ultimatum, designed to achieve satisfaction and provoke a one-on-one war with Serbia, thereby ushering in a new Habsburg golden age, was now threatened by Russian intervention that had previously been declared impossible. In the coming days, it would not be Russian intervention, but European war among the alliance blocs that threatened to be the result of the ultimatum that had been sent out with the highest of hopes, but which soon doomed the dual monarchy to a course of action which she neither wanted nor expected, and which her statesman knew deep down that she could not, in the end, emerge victorious from. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.